0: You are listening to Love Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle, and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Brunswick, Maine. Show summaries are available at lovemaineradio.com. Here are some highlights from this week's program.
1: Unfortunately, that uh,
0: I stopped when
1: you know the, the military service, but in the prison it was a big challenge, you know. I will talk maybe, you will
2: ask me about that. I I belong to an ethnic minority group, the Kurds, who are outnumbered in Iran, in Syria, in Iraq, in Turkey. and We're the largest minority community in the world without our own homeland. So there's always been this holy desire, this dream, to have our own land called Kurdistan. And just for having that dream, we get into trouble with the armies and the dictators in all these three, four countries.
3: This is Dr. Lisa Belial. You are listening to Love, Main Radio, show number 295, Exile, Art, and New Lives, airing for the first time on Sunday, May 14, 2017. What does it feel like to find a new homeland when it is no longer possible to live in the place of one's birth? Today we speak with two individuals who have channeled their experiences into their writing and art. Originally from Baghdad, Iraq, Kifa Abdullah is a former prisoner of war who writes, teaches, and creates art in Portland. Reza Jalali came here from Iran and is now an author and the coordinator of the Office of Multicultural Student Affairs at the University of Southern Maine. Thank you for joining us.
0: Love Maine Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough and buying a car shouldn't be. That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open, honest, and all about getting you on the road. In fact, Berlin City recently won the 2015 Women's Choice Award, a strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience. Berlin City Honda of Portland, easy is how buying a car should be. Go to BerlinCityHondaMe.com for more information.
3: With summer now upon us, I invite you to join us at the Kenny Bungport Festival. Five days of celebration centered around food, wine, art, music, and of course, community. This year's festival is June 5th through 10th, and we're especially excited to note that Love, Maine Radio's producer, Spencer Albee, and his band are headlining the Maine Craft Music Festival with special guests, the ghosts of Paul Revere. For tickets to the Maine Craft Music Festival and details about all the good times waiting for you at the festival, go to kennybunkportfestival.com. All of us at Maine Media Collective look forward to seeing you there.
0: Love, Maine Radio is also brought to you by Aristelle, a lingerie boutique on Exchange Street in Portland's Oldport, where everybody is seen as a work of art and beauty is celebrated from the inside out. Shop with us in person or online at aristelle.com.
3: Today, it is my pleasure to have Kifa Abdullah in the studio with me. Kifa is a poet, artist, writer, performer, teacher, and activist. Born and raised in Baghdad, Iraq, he spent over eight years as a prisoner of war in Iran. He published his first book of poetry, Dead Still Dream, in 2016, and he is preparing to publish his second book, Mountains Without Peaks, very soon. Thanks so Thanks. much for coming in.
1: Thanks for having me. Thank you.
3: I think that you may be the first prisoner of war we've actually ever interviewed.
1: So
3: <laughs> yeah. And I'm not sure that's a good thing for your sake.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
3: That's a, uh, that's kind of a, that's a huge deal. I mean, tell me a little bit about how you, first of all, how you got to be a prisoner of war in the first place.
1: Yes. Uh, it's, um, you know that uh, when I finished uh, my school, that College of Science, and um uh, by law that uh, the boys, the men. And then, uh, unfortunately, at that time, uh, the longest war war in the 20th century, after the Second World War, started between two neighbors in the Middle East, Iraq and Iran. And that time I finished my school, and uh, I must go to the war. I was an activist against the, the dictatorship, but then, uh, I couldn't say no. I said no, but I faced a trouble, a big trouble, and I said I signed like for execution, <laughs> you know, if I don't go. But anyway, in I was in a waterfront, you know, and then it's like uh, you know battles. Our troops they lo- uh they were lost a battle, and they withdraw, and they left me there, and. Uh, I was responsible for to build shelters for the soldiers. And then I was lost in a big desert for three days before I captured. It was, yeah, it it was a a beautiful, I say, you know, experience for me, but yeah, I touched the threshold of death, something like that. And then after three days, um, uh, I was under hallucination, you know, that anger and thirst. And then I was captured, and I was sent uh, to a prison, and I stayed for more than eight years.
3: So you were a student of science.
1: Yes, I studied the uh, uh, biological sciences, you know, and uh, I loved that, you know, but it wasn't my choice first. <laughs> I wanted to go to that uh, art academy, you know, but my father, you know, like, he said, when I finished my high school, you know, I said, like, physics, chemistry, you know, math, you know, Uh, he said, no, (laughs) you should go to that, uh, to study sciences anyway, but you can keep that, you know, that your talents, you know, that in in art as hobby, you know. You know, parents, and then said, okay, you know, yeah, that's it.
3: So you always had an interest in writing and art.
1: Yes. And um, the story about that, um, about art first, you know, before writing. Uh, Since I was very young, in elementary school, uh, at fourth grade, you know, in arts class, the teacher, you know, that uh, art teacher, he stood beside my desk at that time, and he, then he said, wow, oh, you are an artist. And it was like a shock for me. It's like lightning hit me at that time. And then he said, you should come to, you know, that we have after school to the studio. I returned back home. I told my mom, They said, okay. Then I returned uh, again to the school. It was so quiet, calm. You know, fourth grade to go to school and uh, and when I reached that um, the studio and the door was half opened just like I opened the door the fir- that moment you know the smell of oil colors filled my chest it was so wonderful for me then he saw me they say come in, in. that was the beginning you know. I learned from him since I was very young. But the same story that happened again when I was in the middle school, the same that the teacher, uh, the art teacher, uh, he thought that um, you know I'm uh, very talented in painting and drawing. And he taught me that how to work on murals, you know. I worked with him and I learned with, from several teachers you know, about shadow and lights. I just like developed my experience with teachers. In high school, I was like, I, I work like a professional. The, the art teacher say, you are an artist, you know, you should go to the art academy. Then I say, yes, <laughs> I really would love that. But then the story happened. But I kept, even that when I was in a college, yes, uh, my colleagues, the teachers, they know me that as an artist. Beside that, a biologist. But um, unfortunately, that uh, I stopped when you know the the military service. But in the prison, it was a big challenge. You know, I will talk. Maybe you will ask me about that.
3: Yes. Well, I'd love to hear about that. I'd love to hear one of your poems. I believe you've written a poem about your experience. Would you be willing to read that for us? Yes.
1: Yeah. My pleasure. I would like to read, uh, I call that Dream One, and uh, this is about, um, I was in a prison, you know that we were, uh, like uh, thousands in a small prison, and uh, with no windows. And this is a poem about that uh, time, Dream, I dreamt of a small window, through it flows clean air looking over a blue sky. White clouds travel through it. Flocks of birds pass by like air. I dreamt of a small window, the size of my hand overlooking a sea. My eyes travel in it into distant waves of a blue. The yellow sun Comes awakening the morning and the night comes inlaid with light. A window into which the snow whispers, suspended in it, the moon and the rain. Into it flow the colors of autumn and in spring the fragrant buds. A small window in which I count my mornings and my evenings. Nesting in it are my memories. I cultivate in it lush dreams. I dreamt of a small window the size of my hand. I look from it to see my sweetheart. When she comes from afar, she waves to me that she is coming soon, carrying between the folds of her heart happy news, a small window overlooking onto the rest of a new age i dreamt in a place where my one and only dream was and all that i wished for was to have a small window the size of my hand i dreamt
3: so you stayed in a place where there were no windows yes and that is why this window was yes, so important
1: yes that's you. true yeah yeah
3: what was it like as someone who had this artistic um... spirit inside of himself to be in a place where there were no windows where there was no light coming in from the outside
1: yes uh... you know this is the uh, true and um, you know that uh, in life that w- w- we, we don't know, we are very rich, we have many things, you know, that, that we don't pay for. Simple things, like, you know, you can walk, you can, you can touch even that, uh, the, cla- the glass, you know, you can feel the, the sun, the stars, the blue sky, the water, the smell, you know, even the senses. I almost uh, was lost to many of these things. And it was a big challenge, you know, and uh, then just like I have no way, like uh, my memories and the dreams like wake me up again and return me, return me back to life. It's like my body was captured, but not my mind.
3: Were you able to do any art or any writing while you were in prison?
1: Uh, No, absolutely. You know, that uh, it was like, uh, it's forbidden and it's like a sin if they catch someone that with, uh, you know, uh, a pen or pencil. But uh, for me, you know, that uh, it was very difficult, you know, I, I can say you know that I'm different than others maybe because I was very uh, I was an avid reader you know when I was young and I used to use you know that the pen the pencils uh, most of the times then I missed them very much but that after years like uh, and by secret. I got that uh, small pencil, little pencils, like five centimeter, And they investigate us, you know, that uh, every time, like suddenly they come, they, you know, they, they look for anything. Just like I, I hide. That is like my jewels at that time, you know, my treasure. And I just like hide it anywhere you cannot imagine, you know even in my body but at that time even that there's there was no papers and they started you know that's when I say that the uh, prison of war is completely different than a prison normal prison can you imagine uh, most of us we dreamt that we will you know we are in a, in a, in a normal we say in a normal five-star prison you can see tv you can have a radio you can walk you can you know that you can have a pencil you can read you can study but they started like a brainwash and they give us you know that uh, notebooks and uh, uh pens pencils and i started you know that i drew many portraits of the prisoners. They're portraits and they have, you know that, uh, their pictures of family, children, uh, wives, you know, that parents. I filled the prison at that time. And I, uh, the guards, you know that, and uh, the and, and intelligence groups, they were mad about that. And they punished me and tortured me for that. But again, you know that, I didn't stop. You know, after years and years, but also that uh, they forced me to paint, you know, uh, to paint uh, their leaders, you know, the scholars. I refused. This is like a story, you know, that I, um, maybe I talk too much that I have many stories to talk about, you know. Uh, I was dying one time and they, they don't send prisoners to the hospitals. They let the prisoners die in the prison. And unfortunately, we had, we were two. One, you know, the others, he died. But then I just, like, uh, my fate, it wasn't my time. I saw that someone I know, he was a doctor, a prisoner doctor, just like his, uh, uh, you know, that uh, he see the prisoners. And just like I said to him, like, uh, goodbye, and he understood what I mean. And then he came with guards, and they sent me to the hospital. In the hospital, I drew that the guards, you know? You know, I drew the people. You know, it was like a kind of freedom. When I returned back to the prison, uh, you know, that <clears throat> it's like I, I had a surgery, and then I refused. To paint you know uh, that I I don't like and they forced me they punished me even that I had a surgery then I did you know my friends in the prison say are you crazy you know do it just like you know you should survive like this but then you know like after seven years in the prison <clears throat> I wrote uh, like I say a novel you know but in a notebook in secret just like I give to enjoy you know that with each other based on a true story that happened in in the Netherlands I don't I didn't see (laughs) but also that um, I drew the prisoners and the prison and the barbed wires you know that everything I, I documented everything and just like I kept them you know, in secrets between the prisoners. But unfortunately, I would love to bring with them, uh, to bring them with me, but I couldn't, yeah.
3: How, How is it that you were able to get out? Did they finally decide to release the prisoners of war?
1: Yeah. You know that the war ended in 1988, but <coughs> we stayed in the prison, you know, the There was no deal. But after two years, you know, like uh, that was in 1990, uh, there was like uh, agreement between two governments, between two regimes, and by help with the International Red Cross. And just like for almost like two months, you know, we were 70,000 prisoners. And the Iranian prisoners almost like uh, fifty thousand in in, in, in in Iraq, and the deal should be like within two months. But the first time when they came to us, they said, "We return, we will return you back." We loved like with, with Syria, you know, because we heard many times, and just like we we almost forgot, you know. And uh, we will be released, but then just like they came again, and my name was in the the second list, you know, a big lists, and that's what happened when I returned. But I was very afraid, you know, to face that the wall after a decade, you know, yeah, it was a big challenge.
3: How did you come to be in Maine?
1: Yes, um, I say my fate. This is that, uh, <laughs> my, my journey in life, but I was a refugee in, in the Netherlands, and it's a long story that um, uh, my life is complex, full of beauty and the scares and the scars, but I had at that time two children, two boys, they live here with their mom in, 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 in Portland. And in the Netherlands, I tried to build, you know, that uh, myself again. And uh, I studied uh, in the University of Amsterdam to be that, uh, beside the artist, you know, and writer, also that um, a teacher of biology in Dutch. To teach biology in Dutch, I didn't like that, you know, but it's, it's very hard, you know. Then I decided to move, you know, then through that uh, family re- reunion I moved to Portland Maine.
3: How old were your boys?
1: Yes my boys now is like uh, the older is like uh, Mo, he just like graduated from Shifras High School and he's doing very well he's very smart and I'm very happy for that Mm -hmm. and he got uh, full scholarship from three colleges this is wonderful. One is like Bowdoin.
3: That's wonderful.
1: Yeah. And uh, Middlebury School in Fairmont. And in New York, also that. I don't know yet about that. And he is uh, 17 years old. And the younger is like uh, Khalil, his name. He is just like in eighth grade in King Middle School. And uh, that guy, he is... uh, Crazy about basketball. <laughs> yeah, he's uh, thirteen years old, fourteen years old now.
3: How old were they when you reunited with them?
1: Yes, they were young. It's like five years o- uh five years ago. You know, just imagine like uh, Mo. He was twelve years old, and uh, Khalil was um, like uh, yeah, eight. Uh, yeah eight years old
3: so it sounds like they spent some period of time when they were younger without knowing you at all
1: yes I yes this is true that's what happened Uh, because this is my fate, my you know like uh, my journey in life you know this is uh, it's not easy I don't hope for anyone to face what I faced in my in life you know but uh, I'm not sad about that, just like I accepted it, it's my fate. And uh, I experienced many things, you know, many things. But I also that I were in many places, you know, that, uh, because... Uh, and honestly, we were in Jordan, also refugees. My kids were there, you know, that they were very young. And even that they don't know they are Iraqis, you know, that they you know. And um, when people ask them, when they moved here, where are you from, you know, they say, I'm from Jordan, man. This is, uh, you know, yeah. It's, uh, yeah.
3: You have another poem that I'd like you to read for us. Yes. I believe it's about yes, my prefer- being in Portland. Yes, this is,
1: this poem. I called resorgum and you know the story about the resorghum, I said, I will rise, I will rise again. Pearls embroider the blue, white canvas of Casco Bay, and gulls rake the breeze. rain drops drum on the window, and a white line expands in the sky. The clouds are mothers nursing the earth. The nova star approaches the port and I yarn to see my sweetheart. Portland morning is white. The white gulls are balls of ice over the roofs of the old port and silent light grieves over the water. A car drives on a Franklin Street, and flowers open their petals along the roadsides. Clouds sway on the strings of air, and the pink disc rises in absolute stillness. Two fairies begin their journey in Casco Bay. All things are quiet, but a voice in my head singing. That evening, I touched my spirit. It was transparent with tenderness of the breeze. My heart, a city, decorated in stories of love. My eyes, inlaid with colors. Green covers the earth, a new dress, and buds, a blossom on its branches. My mind, a sea, filled with boats of love. My longing, a wave filled with light, and my memories are gulls never tired of the flight. My spirit a mirror, in it I saw more beauty than ever an eye could see. The moon over me is a magnolia flower, and my sweet heart a spring cloud approaching. Yeah, this is the poem about uh, my new home town, you know, Portland.
3: How is it that in the face of being imprisoned for such a long time and going through a lot to get to Maine and having so many things that were so difficult to deal with in your life, how is it that you've been able to maintain the sense of hope?
1: Yes. uh, I lived with hope uh, since a long time that uh, I can say, you know, that uh, I was an activist, you know, against the the dictatorship. besides that, I, I was an activist for peace, you know, and also for that for the women's rights. You know, it's everywhere, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, the women, you know, that uh, she struggles and, uh, but. I had to choose, you know, that um, just like I listen to myself, and I say yes, you know, I should accept what happened to me, it's okay, you know, that's what happened, just like I, wa- I wanted to go forward. And this is just like, a, it just in, in my writing, you know, that even in my painting, uh, you can taste the hope every time, you know. Besides, you, you know, that uh, like um, um, my experience in life, you know, that uh, put me in a, a situation, you know, uh, to practice all these things.
3: Yes. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I've, you're. Poetry is beautiful, and I feel really blessed that you were um, able to come in today. Thank you very much. And to share this with me. I've been speaking with Kifa Abdullah, who is a poet, artist, writer, performer, teacher, and activist, currently living in Portland. Thank you very much.
0: You're very welcome. It's a great honor. Thank you. Love Main Radio is brought to you by The Front Room, The Corner Room, The Grill Room, and Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room, Chef Harding Lee Smith's restaurants where atmosphere, great service, and palate-pleasing options are available to suit any culinary mood. For more information, go to theroomsportland.com. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love, Maine Radio. Portland Art Gallery is Portland's largest gallery and is located in the heart of the Old Port at 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting work of contemporary Maine artists and hosts a series of monthly solo shows in its newly expanded space. The current show schedule includes Nancy Simmons, Elizabeth Hoy, and many more. For complete show details, please visit our website, artcollectormaine.com.
3: It is my great fortune today to have with me Reza Jalali, who is an author and the coordinator of the Office of Multicultural Student Affairs at the University of Southern Maine. Reza co-authored the 2009 book, New Mainers, Portraits of Our Immigrant Neighbors, which told stories of recent immigrants, and has since then published three additional books.
2: Three more books. <laughs>
3: it's great to have you in here today.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
3: So I've been interested in your story for quite a while, because you, I think in reading originally the New Mainers um, you talked about this interesting limbo space that you found yourself in, as someone who's of now of Maine, but also of elsewhere.
2: Uh, I call it the in-betweenness. It's really being in the no man's land emotionally and spiritually. So it's uh, you belong to two worlds at the same time with one foot in each, and it sounds easy, but it's quite hard. And at times, I come across immigrants that uh, seem to live in the two worlds at the same time and they tend to wear a mask when leaving their homes and inside their, their homes they've created this world which is really not real it's imaginary it resembles what's home to them and a small piece of home with old pictures and uh, and things that remind them of home and then they walk outside and then this other different world so and, and we see that again in, in, in all immigrants, including myself.
3: Tell me about your growing up years.
2: Uh, I had a happy, happy childhood. I grew up in this small, dusty board, uh, border town between Iran and Iraq called Qastra Shirin. Uh, the Palace of Shirin, named so in honor of the Shirin, the beautiful Armenian queen and and her tragic love affair with this poor stonecutter. So it's called the City of Lovers in Iran, and because the name of the city actually represents this very ancient uh, love story. And uh, but life was 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 hard at times, and at times uh, I had a happy childhood. I, I was the nine, the youngest in a family of nine. So uh, it took me a while to understand that I do have just one, real parents, because to my young eyes, I thought I had all my older brothers and sisters. There was such a vast difference in age were all my parents, so I thought I had like six fathers and five mothers, and, and uh, it was fun, and it was just, once I got to my teen years, I started to write poetry, and I must admit, really bad poetry, and uh, that I, I started to get into trouble with the secret police, and, and then life became difficult.
3: I'm I'm relating to your large family story. I'm the oldest of ten, so I was probably I was the mother to many <laughs> of my young brothers and sisters, and that's not as normal here, I believe. As no, it's it was not. It's not.
2: Needed. In fact, it's even changed in Iran and many parts of the world. I mean, we we have only two children, and again, there's a clear departure from the old tradition where families would have ten, eleven, fifteen. So, but it was, it was really wonderful and, and being the youngest was, of course, lots of fun because again you had your older brother's wives, my sister-in-laws, who also would take care of me. They didn't have children of their own yet. And so I had all these people who managed to spoil me.
3: So that must have been difficult when you needed to leave because you were leaving a very large family behind
2: and a familiar community and and the landscape which I loved and I I was forced to leave. I was one of those who was kind of displaced because of uh, the international politics of the time. I I belong to an ethnic minority group, the Kurds, who are uh, outnumbered in Iran, in Syria, in Iraq, in Turkey. And we're the largest minority community in the world without our own homeland. So there's always been this holy desire, this dream, to have our own land called Kurdistan. And just for having that dream, we get into trouble with the armies and the dictators in all these three, four countries. So it was hard to leave, but uh, uh, I went to India, and I had to learn a brand new language, and I was all on my own. And that's how I relate to many of my students here at USM, the asylum seekers, the displaced uh, young persons who are coming from different parts of Africa, Latin America, and Asia to live in Maine. And I see myself in them. And uh, so I went to school, and I did quite well. And and I I was so naive, I thought I would go back to Iran, marry a Kurdish women and, and raise a very large family in the same town. And, but I guess I was, uh, my fate had something else in mind, and I ended up in Portland, Maine as a refugee years later.
3: Do I remember correctly that there was some foreshadowing in your life that, that you would actually be leading this different fate than other members of your family?
2: That's right, that's right. It seems, according to a tale in my extended family, uh, my fate had been protected long before when a baby. Uh, the story goes something like that, that like every good good story not starts with a knock at the door. And my mother, carrying me the youngest of her nine children, answers it, to find a group of singing gypsy women. And, and one of them offers to tell the fortune in exchange for money. And my mother, Khanum, we called her, uh, stretches one hand out while holding onto me tight. For the common myth back then was that the gypsies would snatch silly babies to raise them as their own. Uh, The gypsy woman loses interest in reading my mother's palm and instead peeks at my face and sighs. You baby shall drink much water in strange lands,' she says in her broken Farsi. her face turning pale because she knows such really not-so-good news would mean less reward. Uh, My mother gets upset on hearing her youngest uh, might move to faraway land to live among strangers, so she curses the unfortunate woman, throws some change at her before shutting the door. And uh, so... I heard the story, of course, many, many, many years later, uh, and I was sitting in a hotel room with my mother in Istanbul, Turkey. I couldn't go to Iran, and sh- and she couldn't get a visa to come and see me once I got to, to the United States. So we would meet in Europe, and she would leave Iran, and I would go to Europe, and, and we would spend some time sitting together and sharing stories in a hotel room. It was really quite... Uh, quite strange and surreal, and uh, so we got to talk, and uh, and then she got to. I still get emotional talking about it, uh, and she, she shared a story with me, and and uh, had tears in my eyes because I thought, wow, it did it did happen. That that gypsy woman was absolutely right. That I spent uh, almost, I mean, two third more than two third of my life outside of my homeland. Yes, so it's strange how these things happen.
3: So it's not bad enough that you need to leave the place of your birth and leave your family, but the fact that your mother can't come visit you and you can't go visit her and that you're both in a limbo.
2: Absolutely, and that's that's a common story shared by millions of other immigrants that they are unable to go back to their countries of origin, and their siblings, uh, the loved ones, cannot visit them here for one reason or the other, and uh, so that has been really part of the the heartache that that I could not go back. I did manage to go back years later, but by then my mother had passed away, and uh, and then she couldn't come here because it's it's extremely hard for Iranians to obtain a tourist visa or otherwise and uh, and of course the the disruption in the political diplomatic relationship between Iran and the US which by the way uh, they used to be really good friends i go out of my way to to remind my my american friends that Iran and the US were close allies not that long time ago some 30 40 years ago and it's it's hard heartbreaking to see that these two countries which have so much in common in terms of uh, old friendship in terms of Americans uh, being responsible for establishment of the first schools in Iran first girls schools established in Iran by Americans and there's so much shared history between these two nations and I'm not talking about governments here necessarily the people even if to this day you were to visit Iran, and many American journalists and diplomats would, would back me on this, uh, Iranians as a society are the most pro-American communities in the Middle East, perhaps after the Israelis. They love America and everything about America. Now, the government is a different story, of course, and they have their own agenda, their own worldview, and their their own political agenda which is not necessarily the same as the United States but we're talking about people here so it's sad to see these two nations going through these uh, years of distrust and mistrust and and of course for good reasons the Iranian regime has been responsible for for most of the misunderstanding
3: you were in trouble with I'm guessing the government or someone the secret police police. (laughs) Because of your. A uh, you co- couple of
2: reasons. M- my belonging to the Kurdish ethnic group was one problem. That was a huge liability. Uh, and, and the same thing, by the way Iraqi Kurds were in trouble with Saddam Hussein, if you recall. Kurds in Turkey are now involved in almost a civil war with their respective government. Same thing is true about Syria. The Kurds are fighting not only the Syrian regime, as we speak, but ISIS, and helping Americans to to uh, in in their fight and battles against uh, uh, jihadists. Uh, and in Iran, the same thing was was true is continues to be true that so being a Kurd was was a misfortune in those days. Uh, it didn't help that I wrote poetry, that I was active in the politics of the time. I was a troublemaker.
3: Why would you take that chance if you knew that you were already going to be put into this risky category because you were a Kurd? Why would you put yourself even further at risk by writing poetry and being an activist?
2: The short answer, I was young and foolish. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, and, and I loved the politics of my time, and I, and I did not like what was going on with Kurds, how we were treated. We lived like shadows in our own homelands. We were the second-class citizens, men and women. And, and the government went out of its way to tell us that we did not exist. We were the indigenous. We are the indigenous people of that land. Uh, And so there was this cultural genocide against Kurds in Iran. Now there were physical genocides against Iraqi Kurds. Uh, But in our case, they they were trying to stop us from speaking our language, uh, wearing Kurdish clothes, and and also listening to Kurdish music, playing Kurdish music. And I did not like that. So really, uh, going back, maybe I would have not done that. Perhaps I would have stayed away from the politics of the time and focused on writing better poetry. I don't know.
3: So it wasn't because your poetry was not good that they were giving you art. Uh, It was just that your poetry... My poetry
2: just happened to be bad. (coughs) That really, we didn't have a secret police saying, oh, you write bad poetry, you're (laughs) going to get into trouble. That actually would be quite nice. That would be an ideal world where you would have an office going after bad now it was really it was worse than that in all seriousness that that, uh, uh, again uh, and my story by the way is quite universal young persons be it in Argentina being in Turkey in Syria in France uh, in the United States we see young people now participating in marches against the current administration so it's the same story almost everywhere that young persons uh, continue to be engaged and involved in, in the politics of that t- their time and their land, and it's not really bad news necessarily. We want young people to be involved and engaged. I think the opposite of that can be horrible if young people stop, stop caring for, the cl- for their planet or stop caring what goes on in their, in, in their countries and their societies.
3: You are the coordinator of the Office of Multicultural Student Affairs at the University of Southern Maine. And I'm guessing that you've seen, over the time that you've been doing this, some interesting changes.
2: Absolutely. At times I talk about uh, it feels like we went to sleep one night in Portland, Maine, only to wake up the following morning to see the world has come to our harbor. The change has been uh, dramatic, it's been amazing. When I came to Portland, Maine some 30 years ago, I had a very few immigrants. And now, again, it's unbelievable. If you were to walk down Forest Avenue, drive down Forest Avenue, you would see the number of stores, businesses owned and run and managed by, by immigrants. And, and it's quite amazing because all this is happening in a state where steel continues to have the off-putting title of being the widest state in the country. But that's changing in a southern part of the state. One out of five residents in the greater Portland area is now a new manor. So, yes, in my uh, office at the university where I work, I've seen a change when we started this program. We had perhaps 20 to 30 new Mainers. I'm not talking about international students. That's a different program. I'm talking about folks who are here as immigrants, as refugees, asylum seekers, or children of immigrants. And, And now we have our numbers are close to 500. And I personally know that in perhaps five years, if not less, Uh, we would have a a 1,000 or 1,500. We would have perhaps half of our student body as new Mainers. And I make that assumption and and estimate that based on the number of new Mainers studying in middle schools in the greater Portland area, high schools, Daring High School, to give you an example, now has more minority students than than non-minority students. Two years ago... Uh, they, they crossed that threshold, historic, that here you have a high school in Portland, Maine, with larger number of minority students than, than white students. So we hope that some of them would end up at, at University of Southern Maine, and if some of them show up at our doorsteps, it should be all set, because we are we are in need of students. Our enrollment has been down and and we need more students as other universities across the nation do. do. So it's good news and uh, there are opportunities, there are challenges, but I, I'd like to focus more on the opportunities and to me it's, a, it's an old story. It's, there's nothing new about this. This is a story of America. This is part of the narrative of America. Waves of different immigrants coming here and establishing roots and calling this place home and in the process adding to the richness and contribution to the magic we call America.
3: Tell me about your art, your writing, and what that has meant to you as a means of communicating your own personal story.
2: Well, to me, some of these stories need to be shared, need to be told, and there are indecent regimes in my part of the world, dictators, tyrants, who who go around renaming towns and rivers and mountains and trying to rewrite the history. So to me writing in exile is one way that I could make sure some of our stories Uh, Will not be forgotten. I write about the faceless invisible people of the world Some of them Mm. whom arrived here as refugees and asylum seekers I tell their stories my own story and again, I want to make sure that That some of these stories are kept for for future generations the heartaches of having to leave Kurdistan and coming here to start a brand-new life and 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 how painful that can be at times and at the same time it can be a very positive experience they can be a transforming experience so my writings in my writings I try to give life to not only the people who are no longer with us but also the old keys to buildings which no longer stand and I I remember when my mother was a refugee, became a refugee in her own country in Iran forced to move to a safer part of the country because of the Iran-Iraq war which went on for eight years uh... she would wear a key around her neck and by, by doing so she was reminding us of our ancestors home which we had lost through the war and I thought that was so unique and wonderful till I realized that that it wasn't only my mother who was doing that. I, I started to imagine that 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 Jewish shopkeeper in Poland was forced to leave his business and and his community because of the violence, uh, the Hitler era violence in in Germany must have also had a key around his, his, his neck perhaps to remind him of what he had lost so these are universal stories of, of loss of uh, a sense of despair when you see the boatloads of Syrian refugees leaving the war-torn Syria they must be so desperate to put their lives on board and risking their lives and, and, and the, loves of their, uh, the lives of their loved ones you know there's something totally broken and rebroken about this world. So as an artist, I'm trying to write about that, how broken our world is and perhaps can we repair it. So my stories are all not about despair and and really, I want to make sure that people would would not stop reading my stories, would not give up on me, but there's also hope somewhere there that, that we have to find ways to repair our broken world.
3: When you speak to your own children in your own family about... They don't
2: listen to me, I'm uh, kidding, <laughs> I'm totally that's kidding. That's shocking.
3: <laughs> I'm
1: kidding.
2: Somebody
3: whose kids don't <laughs> listen to them, how strange. Uh, but let's assume at some point they will listen. They would listen. Most children, uh, my experience at least with my kids who are a little older, is that they eventually come back and they start listening to them again. They do. Yes. What are some of the things that you would like them to understand about you as a person and you as a person of the world
2: well now they're all there and listen to me they in, in college both of them but when they were younger they must have thought of me as this crazy dude who listens to this strange music and then sometimes wipes a tear after listening to the music and looks at these old black and white family albums and then has these books in strange languages and he spends tons of his time listening to the news and worrying about what's going on in the middle east i recall to give an example i recall uh, the time when our daughter would come home and s- would tell me "Dad, when i bring my friends home could you not cook those strange dishes that smell funny my friends don't like that can't you be she would say that to my wife and I can't you guys be like normal <laughs> parents and and just serve us like pizza uh, my, my kids my friends don't like what you make and it was heartbreaking we found it quite funny but quite heartbreaking that there was this now vast gap taking place between culturally between our kids and us and now, of course, they love the food we make and their friends love the food we make and they don't think I'm crazy and they understand why at times I'm very sad. Uh, so, as you said, they, they come around, but uh, children of immigrants really live in a different world than us than the parents. So the generational, intergenerational tension starts soon. They become immigrants much faster than we, we do. We do it reluctantly. We, we keep on hanging onto that old world because this is fa- fading hope and it fades as the time goes by. Then maybe, maybe going back would become a possibility. I mean, I run into my friends from Armenia here locally in Portland, Maine, who still talk about Armenia. I, I run into friends uh, from other parts of the world who. Who talk about their their communities, about the towns, about the villages, about that the 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 house where they grew up, with a sense as if they're going to go back tomorrow. So it's quite natural for all of us to feel that way. But the kids become Americanized really quickly. They learn the language fast, and they want to listen to to uh, quote unquote American music, and they 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 like to fit in, which is quite natural. And they don't want to stand out and be different. And uh, I I remember our son coming home when he was in the middle school, and he has this gorgeous Kurdish name, and he said, Dad, I want to be called Michael starting today. And I knew, I knew as an educator, as a former social worker, I, I knew what he was going through, so we didn't show any resistance, but cool, Michael, awesome. You're Michael, starting today. And then six months later, or three months later, he forgot. The point is you are trying to fit in, not so much with us. Oh, We have the skills to really live two different lives, different than one another.
3: Well, it has really been wonderful to have you in the studio with me today, and I appreciate all the work that you have done to um, help others be part of Maine the way that you have become part of Maine. I've been speaking with Reza Jalali, who is an author and the coordinator of the Office of Multicultural Student Affairs at the University of Southern Maine, and also author of multiple books and father to children living in this area, and husband, thank you so much for coming in. Well,
2: thank you so much for having me, and I want to thank you and, and uh, all the wonderful work you do in, in keeping Portland a healthy and safe and wonderful and
0: vibrant place for all of us. Thank you. Love, Main Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda, where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough, and buying a car shouldn't be. That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open, honest, and all about getting you on the road. In fact, Berlin City recently won the 2015 Women's Choice Award, a strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience. Berlin City Honda of Portland. Easy. It's how buying a car should be. Go to BerlinCityHondaMe.com for more information.
3: With summer now upon us, I invite you to join us at the Kennebunkport Festival. Five days of celebration centered around food, wine, art, music, and of course, community. This year's festival is June 5th through 10th, and we're especially excited to note that Love, Maine Radio's producer, Spencer Albee, and his band are headlining the Maine Craft Music Festival, with special guests the ghosts of Paul Revere for tickets to the Maine craft music festival and details about all the good times waiting for you at the festival go to kennybunkportfestival.com all of us at Maine media collective look forward to seeing you there you've been listening to love main radio show number 295 exile art and new lives our guests have included kifa abdullah and reza jalali for more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Lovemain Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Lovemain Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa and see our Lovemain Radio photos on Instagram. We'd love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Lovemain Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love, Maine Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belisle. I hope that you have enjoyed our Exile Art and New live show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life.
0: Love, Maine Radio is made possible with the support of Berlin City Honda, the rooms by Harding Lee Smith, Maine Magazine, Portland Art Gallery, and Art Collector Maine. Audio production and original music have been provided by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producer is Paul Koenig. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasik. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Rebecca Falzano, and Lisa Belisle. For more information on our host production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com.